Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. If you need help with editing, music production, or anything else related to your podcast, reach out to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com to discuss how I can help you get your voice heard. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today will be a financial episode a little bit different than our past finance episodes. We focused a lot on investments or how to further your career. In other words, ways to increase the cash flow coming in. But we haven't talked as much about how to watch your spending and make sure that you are budgeting wisely. I'm really excited to do this episode for a couple of reasons. My brother Eric has agreed to come back on the podcast. This is his third time for those keeping score. All of the episodes he's joined me in so far have been entertainment episodes, so Star Wars and comic books. But this is an area that we align quite a bit on. Some people would say that we are cheap. I think we both like to think that we are very savvy with our dollars. So what we're going to do is go through various areas of our life and how we spend money, what our philosophies are, at least as a bit of a benchmark for people to start thinking about their own budgets and where maybe you can save if you need to, or maybe other areas that you should prioritize that you otherwise have not. So Eric, thanks again for joining the show. Sure. I have a few thoughts of where my perspective in budgeting came from growing up. But I'm curious from your perspective, when do you think or what earliest age do you remember even having the concept of money coming in, I need to save this for a big purchase or not have to get into loans or even in in further down, like for college, let's say, when was your earliest memory of something like that? I don't think I've ever had kind of the money burning a hole in my pocket type of mentality. I can remember as a kid having allowance money and, you know, given the option of going to buy a toy or saving it, and I would almost always save it. I've just always kind of had a natural inclination that way. I actually have the exact same recollection myself that I couldn't necessarily point to any particular conversation that was around, here's a credit card, and here's why you don't want to rack up a bunch of spends on it that you can't pay back or here's what a college loan looks like. So keep your college expenses as low as you possibly can. Maybe some of the things that came to mind that we might've observed is video games is something that comes to mind. I think we were pretty late to get a Nintendo What it came out in 86, I want to say, and we've got ours in 89 ish. So three or so years after the fact. And then once the upgraded systems came out, what were we asked? Oh, are all these things that we paid for backwards compatible? <laughs> well, of course, the answer was no. And I that always stuck in my mind as one reason to not throw away the thing you have, sort of uh, enjoy what you have and use it to the end of its life, <laughs> depending on what that means for people. Don't just go on to the next thing. So that was the first one that I could think of. And of course, when we got that, I would have been six or seven years old. Any other family purchases that you can think of that maybe would have set us down that path? Well, hell, I still do that with video games. I mean, I <laughs> I try to like skip a generation every time and I never buy games new. I always wait till they're either digital download or get them at a used store for 10 bucks or less. So 
I definitely would agree with you, but I think just in general, I I, I struggle to come up with the opposite of things where I kind of really opened up the the budget wide for something in particular. I think it's just kind of my standard operating procedure. The only other thing that I can really point to would be just the college conversation. It was always understood that we would go to college. It was going to cost a lot of money. I don't remember any specific conversations about how much or even a strategy for a a savings goal up to that point. It was just, yes, there's college. Hey, here's birthday money. Hey, here's allowance. Here's Christmas money. You will have a job when you hit around the age of 16, save presumably most of that money. So for me, college was just this phantom ghost that was always looming over my saving and my finances. And again, like I mentioned, we never really got into the concept of loans or what that would look like after the fact. Once you started to see the numbers, of course, you know, unless you're getting major scholarships, you're no kid is probably going to have enough money that they're paying their way all the way through college without some other kind of help. So that was the other thing that I could think of when I was trying to decide where the frugal habits first came from. Again, similar mindset as far as how you approached college. I know there was kind of a a general half of the cost is going to be on you, but I mean, and I know college costs have gotten a lot more since I was there. That can be a pretty darn wide range of, of cost based on where you're planning on going and what your scholarship situation is and grants and et cetera, et cetera. So definitely by 16, but I think by 13-ish, maybe even a little younger than that, I was doing um, landscaping for neighbors, babysitting for neighbors, odds and ends for that kind of thing. And, and again, my general tendency was to save that. And, and to your point, it would be extremely rare that someone would be able to save enough to cover those costs, but maximize whatever savings you possibly could. Because that half number, you knew it was a big number. It was sort of a specter of a number out there. So try to make as big a dent as you could to pay as much as you could before you had to go take on debts or anything like that. Do you think that acknowledgement of some amount to pay back affected the colleges that you were looking at as far as total cost or not? It did a little bit, given what I wanted to study. I knew I wanted to stay fairly close to home within a couple hours, and I knew what I wanted to study, and that really narrowed my options to maybe half a dozen schools, and then looking at the schools, those half dozen schools, I had it narrowed down to three, and those three were close enough where it really came down to kind of what scholarships were going to look like. I don't think I went with the cheapest option, but they were all close enough that, in fact, if memory serves, I think I went back to the school, basically taking competitive bids to the school and say, all right, well, this school's offering X dollars in scholarship. Are are you willing to match or are you willing to up what you're offering? So in some ways, yes, but I don't think the ultimate decision really came down to money. There were other factors there. I'm glad you mentioned that example because I've talked about it actually on other people's podcasts, highlighting my financial journey of once you get all of those offers in and you have the scholarship money, obviously with the help of parents, Call those schools up, see if there is anything else that they can do other than just putting more loans into it, grant scholarships to get their price down, and then have that at least as part of consideration. And for me, uh, the school I went to was able to come up with some extra money, and they actually also had frozen tuition along with that. So with the inflation, of course, that seems to be par for the course with colleges. I didn't have that through the years, which turned out to be a really nice savings overall. So yeah, I think that's something that people wouldn't necessarily think of because it's hard to change your mind thinking of a college as a business, but it is. They need students. They need the tuition that's coming in. Unless they are a super selective, super elite school, doesn't hurt to have that conversation and see if there's other funds that they can come up with to get you to, to come into the school. So I had the exact same Uh, experience. And I would encourage folks to keep that in mind if they are getting ready for college or if you've got kids that are getting ready of exploring some of those options as well as 
community college and you know uh, vocational schools and so on. I think that world has probably opened up quite a bit with the story of student debt that has now come on. And I think for both of us, because of the due diligence on the front end, uh, coming out of college, it was relatively reasonable amount of debt. I my number was about seven thousand uh, at that point, which I think the average. It's probably more like 30. Is that right? Is it 30 grand these days? I think so. And even that might even be low, uh, to be honest with you. I'd have to check to what it is for sure. But I, I know that I was well below the curve. And of course, the same personality traits persist that as soon as I got out of school, like hammer that debt before you go on to the next thing. Because ever since I can remember, it was college, college, college. And the quicker I could get past that milestone, <laughs> the quicker I wanted to be able to do it just so I was, uh, I guess, onto adult life in my mind. It's been a few years, so I don't remember what the exact number was. My wife uh, had debts and I kind of had the same philosophy toward her debts. I think looking at it, I, I always had age or at least age is what sticks in my mind more than numbers. And I know I was looking at her debt one time and thinking, yeah, no, we're not going to have this paid off until you're 45 years old. That I just that's not going to work <laughs> for me. So maybe in retrospect, it, it was more about the age. I'm sure at the time I had the numbers pretty well in hand, but uh, certainly the same philosophy. That's a great transition into the next major purchase that I have on our list as far as age, and that is buying a house. The reason I say that, of course, is the standard mortgage is 30 years. And you and I both purchased a house relatively young, I think, compared to the general population. I know yours was a little more for necessity than when I eventually bought. But again, people, I think, sort of go through the process, get that 30-year mortgage. And if you buy a house in your 20s and don't do any extra payments you're going to be in your 50s by the time that that goes away. And of course, that means the amount of principal that you're paying down in the early years of that loan is next to nothing. So you'd really have to do a due diligence between renting and buying if you're not really being diligent with that. Can you talk a little bit about what your first home buying process was like and how you educated yourself on how to buy, what to be looking for, what the mortgages were going to look like. I was 22 when I bought my first house, so pretty much right out of school. I'm in Pittsburgh, and I think the real estate market here is, uh, it, it just was not particularly renter-friendly. I could buy a house for less than what I could find uh, a lot of a, a decent apartment for. So I know I did have a pretty strict budget, and housing being as affordable as it as it is here, it was a pretty modest budget. It ended up being several hundred dollars a month less than what I would have paid in rent. As far as the process itself went, I know I relied on some more experienced people like my parents to kind of give me some suggestions. Somewhat my real estate agent, though she was relatively new, and I worked with her a second time and it went much more smoothly. I think the first time around we had a bit of a disconnect. I kind of had the same mindset that you were talking about with colleges and that I'm the customer here. So I, I'm not really concerned with what the seller, what their feeling is on the thing. It's just a business transaction. I will make an offer. And if they don't like that offer, they're welcome to say no. And we'll both part ways and go on with our lives. So budget was very high on the list. And I was resistant to borrowing anything more than uh, I remember having in my head, I wanted it to be at least two or $300 a month less than what I could get an apartment for. One thing I'm going to piggyback on is that relationship with the real estate agent. Because in a similar vein of what you're talking about, something that makes me roll my eyes is when you'll get the speech about the emotions in it and, oh, can you see yourself living here for a certain amount of time? It's like, look, no, <laughs> it, it is about the numbers. It is about the value that I'm getting when you consider the school district it's in or just the home values of the area, safety of the area, stuff like that. As far as the aesthetic in the house, for me, 
that's going to be a couple down the list, certainly for your first house. And I would even argue for any home purchase that you're going to have. So if anybody happens to be a real estate agent that's listening to this, my preference is to stay away from the emotional side of it saying, oh, it's the house that fits you or so on. Like, no, it's do the dollars make sense? <laughs> do I get all the other things checked off the list that I have? And then also what you're describing, of course, of doing that due diligence between renting and buying a home. I have not really been in the rental arena for a while. So I can't say if those same comparisons hold. Uh, I know at one time it probably wasn't the smartest thing to be buying after the downturn and so on. Because the other thing I think that you're talking about with the couple hundred dollars is that consideration of maintenance, right? Because at least with renting, if you're not getting at least that couple hundred dollars or so, you don't have to worry when an appliance breaks or something else goes wrong. That's baked into what you're paying for and then your landlord has to deal with it. Of course, with your home, you're the one that's having to take care of that. So was that kind of part of the break even for what your mortgage was going to be compared to what you saw for rental opportunities? The equity you're building in the house can offset that a fair amount. Uh, but I, I think for me, it was really just kind of dollars and cents for a monthly budget. If I could buy for a little less than I could rent, it just seemed like, okay, then that's a no-brainer. In most cases, it probably would make sense. One of the other things you hear quite a bit is considering how long you're going to be in a particular area or the house itself. Do you remember that conversation coming up as a consideration for buying then versus renting? I mean, the first house we were in, we definitely knew was going to be a starter house because school district and that kind of thing was was not going to work. Being newly married, we were thinking somewhere between five and seven years. It ended up being exactly the middle of that, about six years. I don't know that I had a hard and fast rule. I mean, life comes at you with <laughs> maybe plans that you didn't plan for or events you didn't plan for. So we kind of did what you described earlier. It was like a 30-year mortgage, first-time homebuyer loan. More or less was like, let's get the groundwork here and then we'll we'll build from there. I had a similar mindset, I think, when I first purchased. And I will say I did not do some of those other due diligence things first and foremost of how long was I going to be the area that I was buying in. I was in central Pennsylvania at the time, had no idea how long I was going to be there. It was single, unattached, so really didn't have to stay in the area. But I think I was ready for a single family home. And frankly, I don't even think I realized at the time there was a concept of renting a single family home. Also, the only reason I really wanted a single family home is so that I could play my music and do other stuff like that and not have like a tap on the wall from the, the person that's uh, sharing a wall with me that gets tired of me having TV or music or whatever on for too loud. So I almost thought I had to buy at that point sort of just a thing that you did. Uh, and then the rest of it was the same falling into place, except I, I always remember this irony from the aggressive saving and getting the best deal you can. I did everything I could to get to 5% down, which was just enough to get me to whatever the next kind of loan was above an FHA. Because if memory serves, the FHA was like 3%. So it wasn't a huge additional amount that I needed to get to, but it was an additional amount. Well, the reason why that sticks in my mind is that was right when some of the home buyer incentives were first introduced because it was when the market was just first starting to come down. And it turned out all of them only applied to FHA loans. So I actually saved myself out of, so to speak, uh, some of the incentives that the government was paying at the time. So that was kind of kick in the pants. <laughs> but by and large, <laughs> I think it's not a bad way to go to try to get as much down as you possibly can. Because obviously, the more you have, the better the interest rate you're going to get. Uh, and then, of course, that also goes without saying for your credit score of keeping that up to where it needs to be. Um, and then one other acknowledgement for folks that maybe aren't aware of PMI, I think for most first-time homebuyers probably do have to deal with PMI, which is if you don't have 20% down, you're having to pay that to the mortgage company and they consider it insurance in case you default because you don't have as much equity in the house as a standard 20% loan. And I will also say if I had to do it over again, I probably would have attacked my mortgage a little bit more aggressively to get rid of that PMI. Because I know mine was at least 
125 $150 a month, which relative yeah, to the mortgage, right. yeah, relative to the mortgage, that's a, a pretty hefty chunk that again is no different than, than renting. It's just going right out the door. You're not building any equity on that. And what about your perspective on DIY? I really want to get some home improvement episodes on the show and I've had a heck of a time getting people to really talk about them. So I'll, I'll, corner you into the topic maybe for a little bit just to say that we have some what, what was your philosophy of getting into the home you mentioned starter home that's probably pretty similar for a lot of folks uh, how did you go about maintenance and potentially even upgrades that's kind of a good sample topic as far as cheapness for me you kind of alluded to it earlier talking about you know kind of the feel of the home or you know a lot of that maintenance or or kind of cosmetic things or things that looking back on it now maybe arrogantly i figured i could do i mean i had some basic do it yourself skills um i would still say i have fairly basic do-it-yourself skills, though I think the gamut of of that runs <laughs> pretty wide. I've had more than one person say that I can do quite a lot. So I, I guess that depends on what you're comfortable with. But in general, cheap for me dovetails into a lot of other philosophies. I am cheap, but it also kind of goes into other things I believe in. And I think do-it-yourself is, is one of those things where if I do it myself, I get the advantage of learning whatever that thing is. And the first time you do something's always scary, but then after you do it the first time, it doesn't seem nearly as daunting as it did the first time, and in some cases becomes easy enough. And I think also... Somewhat from personal experience, but probably more so from others' experience, hiring people to do home improvement things is a pain in the ass. I just am often cheap to avoid a hassle. And do-it-yourself, I think, is is somewhat cheap, but also somewhat just avoiding the hassle of getting someone to come in, getting a quote making sure the the quality of the work is good. Um, I can kind of bypass that and learn something in the process and do it for, say, half the price. I'm not foolish about it. I put a bathroom in and I did hire a, a plumber to run the plumbing for that and then did the rest of it myself. Part of it is definitely saving a buck, and I always have an eye on that, but it, it also dovetails into some of those other things, uh, specifically in that case, just not wanting to have to go through the process of, of hiring and verifying what's being done. And a point that my guest on a home improvement episode we did uh, months ago at this point had as well is make no mistake, the contractors, generally speaking, are all about volume. Or in other words, they're wanting to get in, do the job and get out and go to the next one. They are not going to have nearly as much invested in the job being done correctly or the way you want, obviously, as you would. And then, as you mentioned, you're going to get those skills, whether that's just transferring to the next job you're going to do or helping friends and family or however else you're going to use the skills. And also, when you're doing the work, you know what happened with it. Or to say it even a different way, when you get into an old house and the DIY nightmares, of course, part of the nightmare is the fact that you don't know what those people did. So there's surprises lurking maybe behind the walls or wherever in the house. If you're doing the work yourself, you know how you did it. And if you need to change something up, hopefully you're not chasing that contractor back down just to even figure out why something broke or whatever else had happened to go on with it. One other tip that I would give is also be mindful of the materials that you're putting into your house. And what I mean by that is if it's your starter home and let's say you're trying to do a basic facelift of your kitchen, you don't need to put in granite countertops or you know top of the line quartz or anything like that if you know darn well your neighbors don't have anything like that. Like be tasteful, use good materials, but don't spend so much money that it's going to be way outside of what the other houses are going to be like in your neighborhood because you're never going to see that money back. The only exception I would say to that is if you are in your forever home and you're really just not treating your home as any kind of investment at that point. Um, so that was a, a lesson learned for me. Now, I maybe went a little bit too much the other way. Here's one example. When we were doing my half bath, ripping it out and putting everything back in, I was even too cheap to get MDF 
baseboards. I got some sort of plastic made for outdoor material that you couldn't even cut with a chop saw because it would fray on the ends. Like we had to really, wow. Yeah. We'd use like a coping saw just to keep the edges somewhat fresh. That's going a little bit too far. (laughs) Don't (laughs) save yourself a little bit of stress with the materials that you're using so that the job itself doesn't drive you completely nuts. But again, on the other end, I would say don't go hog wild on the materials and spend a whole boatload of money just because that's what you think your dream kitchen is or whatever area of the house. And meanwhile, statistically speaking, you're not going to be in that house for probably more than about seven years, I think is about that average. How about weddings? I think this is something that people definitely circle as a major expense And I know when I was doing the wedding circuit, so to speak, as all my friends were getting married, there seems to be a time in your life, I'd say mid to late 20s into early 30s, where you're going to a wedding like every six months because that's when all your friends are getting married. And the venues ran the gamut for my friends, including ours. What was your perspective on wedding expenses and how to keep the cost manageable while still having a memorable event. No surprise. My philosophy was keep the costs low. Like for a wedding, in our case, bargain basement low. We were young for, I mean, we were right out of college. We were only six months out of college. Our wedding was more or less kind of like a college party graduated into a wedding. I mean, I, I did not skimp on the alcohol budget. That was about it. I don't have know anyone that went to the wedding that's thought like, you know, this is chintzy. Or, in fact, most of the reviews we heard was, this is the most fun I've had at a wedding ever. But I think that's because it was sort of a college party on steroids. That's a case where I think actually cheaping out made it more fun and and thereby, in my mind, more memorable. We had pizza as hors (laughs) d'oeuvres. So it was like, and it wasn't shitty pizza. The place we had booked, the guy made fresh pizza. That that was something else we people raved about. So it, it was certainly a way of doing it on the cheap, maybe just because it's atypical, it stood out in people's mind. But I think more often than not, it kind of made it more of a fun event than it did cheap feeling thing. I think it gets into a theme. I imagine we're going to touch on even more when it comes to entertainment. Certainly when we hit close that it's really more the relationships and the people and the interactions that make something memorable than the stuff that's going on there. For example, now we did the country club, everything included wedding from a budgeting standpoint. That's because (laughs) my wife is a only child. Parents had a certain amount available and it fit the budget that we had. So it frankly wasn't coming out of our pocket. So we had some of that flexibility, but using that as a comparison to, like you said, your wedding and some other friends' weddings where they run it out of barn or even like a VFW hall. And as long as the right people were there with the right sentiment, it didn't matter. I couldn't tell you what the people were wearing or even, frankly, what was said during the ceremony. It's really more of what kind of a good time was had during the reception. And that's really about it. Yeah. And even a fancy wedding like yours, you still have going behind the bar to get their <laughs> i.e. me to go behind the bar to get themselves drinks so you know yeah. you're right it's it's a lot the crowd it, you you can try and dress it up but if you know the crowd's the crowd so maybe uh, some of the country clubs are going to start having culture forms that you have to fill out then they can decide whether or not they're even going to let you book the place before. Yeah, they're going to screen your guests for you <laughs> yeah exactly which actually all the more reason the other way of like yeah you if you want to have a good time don't don't uh, go somewhere where you think you're going to get slapped with some extra bill or something because your friends broke some fancy decoration or whatever else it happens to be. You don't want to have to be worrying about stuff like that um, as it's all going on. Exactly. So the next purchase I think that folks would have in mind as we are going really chronologically here are cars. Now, I would imagine you've got a pretty unique perspective in the world of cars based on what I know of your purchasing history. What do you look for in car purchase 
what do you hope to get out of the vehicle as far as reliability and how long you have it? I was reading an article this probably years ago now, and it was saying, you know, drastic ways you can cut your budget. And one of their final tips, like as drastic as it gets, was to go to one car. And I thought, well, I've been a one car family for you know six or seven years. So I think for me, some people seem to get like a real joy and excitement out of cars. And that just is not the case for me. I really want a car to get from point A to point B. For me, I'm usually looking at what up to this point, it's always been a used car. I'll look at reviews for maintenance costs and I'll look at gas mileage, suitable space for the family. But those are really the two primary things I look for. As far as how long I keep it is until it dies, uh, more or less. It's cheaper to keep her. That's the whole car thing. That's really my philosophy. And, and I fear I'm going to have to be in the market for a car sooner rather than later. And I just, I don't get any joy out of it. So as you were saying about a house kind of taking the emotion out of it, which for me, I agree with, I think some other people buy differently and maybe they are more on board with that. But for a car, even more so, I, I don't want to hear about bells and whistles i don't want to hear about how it makes you feel or the interior it's like as long as it's got a seat and a steering wheel and wheels and an engine and it goes from point a to point b that's really all the more i'm looking for to add a few extra details that probably puts you in a little bit of a minority category i would say so for the record you're talking about family of five so when you say single car that is family of five that you're accommodating with one car rather than two which is awesome and and so for those that say well how does that work for getting to work what is your general mode of transportation when you do have to go into the office we had two cars and i work downtown i didn't want to pay for parking more or less so um, i started investigating public transit and i found that the bus was right there and it, it was a pretty short bus trip so i did that for about a year or so and then i discovered that there were bike paths not far from my previous house and it ended up being about six miles one way via bicycle so I started riding a bicycle. And then when I moved houses, I specifically looked for a house that was still within cycling distance from the downtown area. So in the good weather, I cycle. In the bad weather, I use public transit. But I, I have not driven a car to work in uh, like 14 years. That's awesome. <laughs> and actually, just to show that I was following your lead on that one, I was living in Salt Lake City at the time that I know you were getting educated on bikes. So I looked on Craigslist for a similar thing. Turns out that because Salt Lake is a very active city, it was really hard to find a real cheapo bike. And I only wanted to spend like a hundred bucks. Knowing nothing about bikes, I ended up with a way too small with for me girls bike. <laughs> I, I didn't know the difference between a guy's bike and a girl's bike was just the bar that went lower down. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, there's not that many other differences. And then I started biking. And now lucky for me, that was also the year that gas went up to like $4 a gallon. So I, I saved some money. Now I had a car of my own. Of course, at the time I did not have a family that I had to worry about getting from place to place either. So it was not a necessity at all for me to have to bike to work. But I did take your lead on that and did manage to save quite a bit of money certainly paid for the bike pretty quickly. And hey, you're getting some extra exercise. I think that's another thing to point out with that particular example is kill two birds with one stone whenever you can. And why pay for a gym membership when you can bike to and from work or whatever other ways of staying healthy? It's it's kind of a two for one for that. And plus, <laughs> when you're biking home, you don't have a choice. You got to finish that workout because you got to get home somehow. A lot of people get intimidated. I understand. I've heard different reasons to not cycle, but there's also, it's just how motivated are you? Sometimes people will say, oh, 10 miles, 10 miles, it's, it's an hour. I mean, I know tons of people that commute an hour in a car and they don't think anything of it. So, you know, people hear 10 miles and it sounds, 10 miles sounds daunting until you do 10 miles. I had done an interview at work about cycling and, and I had made the point that 
it it sounds out of the ordinary until you start doing it, and then it just becomes your commute. It's you don't really think anything of it. And I've heard, you know, some people are uncomfortable cycling on streets, and you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of different reasons I've heard people some some valid, some I think are just kind of excuse making. It's not impossible, you know. I think for some of these things, people hear it and they think, oh, that I just can't possibly do that, and I. Nine times out of ten, I think they're probably selling themselves short. Cycling, that's another example of, yeah, cheap, but there, there's just so many fringe benefits. Um, I mean, exercise, but riding the bus, I, I, often riding the bus sucks. <laughs> you're on the bus, you're jammed in with all these people. Comparing that to kind of getting out for a 10-mile bike ride and clearing your head and getting some exercise before the, your workday starts, and then kind of, again, on the flip side, on your way home, there's as much benefit there as there is financial. I almost even felt like you're somehow cheating the system. Uh, another benefit, I think, is predictability of the commute. Because, of course, when you come in with a car, you don't know if there's going to be an accident or some other reason for major traffic that could make your expected commute longer. With a bike, relatively speaking, it's the same path same route and it's going to take you about the same amount of time unless you're just feeling super sluggish for that day. So there's also that extra predictability. And again, I think it makes you feel like you're somehow cheating the system if there is a bad accident and then you hear about it once you get into the office. My only other caveat I will say is when I was biking to work, the office I worked in had a shower facility. I know that for me, I would have had a tougher time not just sweating completely through my clothes and Nobody wanting to be around me if I didn't have a shower facility and and actually even had lockers there. So I was just able to bring the next day's change of clothes and put it in the locker and leave them and sort of had a system like that. So um, that was one that I had to work through and would have been a little tougher without having that as a facility. But to your point, I think it is definitely something that's doable. You just kind of kind of do the research and not accept that sticking with the theme we're talking about here that you have to have a car for certain activities and that you have to buy a certain kind of car, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these have been our experience going from kid age into adult age. What about having kids and what's been your philosophy to this point as far as saving budgeting from the heavy hitter items like school or even kids' activities, uh, their stuff, like clothes or toys, things like that. Uh, Years ago, we used to have a more strict budget. I don't follow it quite as closely as I used to. Again, it's sort of a philosophy of not wanting to be hassled. That sounds really selfish when I say it out loud, but I think for our kids, I, I wouldn't say that we skimp, but we also have some boundaries around we're not going to be a, like running around for multiple activities kind of thing. Some of that is definitely cheapness. Some of that is just logistic with one car. Now we have really everyone in the family except me <laughs> as a dedicated activity, including my wife, that, that they do multiple times a week. She manages to to make that schedule work with one car. So we have to be maybe more diligent about activities and we have to kind of rely on our kids that you're going to have to wait at dance for 15 minutes before we're here to pick you up because we can't get from karate to dance in you know, X amount of time. So it kind of requires a little flexibility from probably everyone in the family, including the kids. I don't know. With that, I, I feel like you gain a little inconvenience, gains a lot of appreciation and just maybe like some a little room to breathe. I mean, 15 minutes waiting means maybe 15 minutes of time to think and, and take a breath. Well, how about even just that comparison of stuff versus experiences? So you're talking about activities and I'm assuming mostly like after school activities or summer camps, just the different things like that. How does that prioritize, this is a leading question, how does that prioritize compared to the stuff, whether that's clothes, toys, electronics? I mean, for me, stuff, other than maybe comic books, given our last conversation, although (laughs) even that has has tailed off quite a bit um, in, in recent years, I just, materialistically, there's just very few things I genuinely want. 
I think in that way, I'm just wired a little differently. I'll hear people talk about like a, a shopping high or that kind of, I've never experienced that. If anything, I have a mild sense of guilt if I buy something. I, I get more of a thrill about maybe making an unexpected contribution to my IRA or something would, would give me more of a thrill than like clothes shopping would. So I, some of that I think is just, I'm, I'm wired. Uh, I'm just not wired for that. So for me personally, very few things for the family. If it's reasonable, we don't make a big deal about it. If it's something larger, like there was an ongoing conversation about an iPhone where it was sort of guidelines on what an iPhone may or may not look like and, and what that budget would look like. So more or less, if, if the kids have something that they want that either seems unnecessary or a higher ticket price than I'm anticipating, they more or less have to sell the idea on why they think that that's a necessity. So for me, experience is a lot more. I mean, we, I, I, I don't think we don't sk- skimp on, on travel, really. I mean, we skip. You're not going to find me at a five star hotel. Like I've definitely stayed in hotels where other people have gone. Really, that this is not cool. And I'm going. Well, I don't understand the problem. Like we're we're not doing luxury vacations, but I I don't skimp. We usually do multiple vacations a year. Actually, as I was thinking of examples leading up to our conversation, another that came to mind of Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You'll know the people involved, but I've lost friends because of the hotel situation. And actually, it was my parents who got an Econo Lodge in New Haven, Connecticut. And even they, once they got to this place, said it was probably the worst hotel they've ever been in. And the day before they got there, my buddies were supposed to stay there for a night. And uh, <laughs> the guy was, I guess, so upset by the cheapness of this particular hotel that after that wedding was over, I never heard from him again. <laughs> so, Yeah, I've only had that experience once with an Airbnb, but I still made all five of my friends stick with it. And as far as I know, I'm still friends with yeah. them. Um, but it was, even I thought that Airbnb was a little rough. Yeah. So I, I hear you. But you know what, as I always say with any of our travel stories, for example, I've told the Germany trip stories quite a few times as far as not really knowing where we were going to stay for a particular night. Hey, those make for the best experiences and most memorable experiences when you're flying by the seat of your pants and aren't necessarily going on a packaged vacation. Now, I understand where I'm sitting right now, fresh off a couple of very packaged Disney trips that I've got some making up to do in that category, but uh, I, I fully intend to. And that's what I would tell folks is, to your point, don't skimp on going and doing the things, especially travel, but there are certainly more than one way to get there and ways to save money, whether that's on the sleeping accommodations, as we're talking about, even the way to get there, uh, as far as the different air travel services that are available, and so on and so forth. So I, I would encourage people to really do as much research as they can before they think they just can't afford particular travel. Because if there's anywhere that somebody's going to spend their money, I think that's a worthy area to be able to spend and, and have experiences like that. Well, let's jump back to the stuff piece because I think it's another outlier for you and I both. I've kind of go back and forth, but for clothes, <laughs> what is your perspective on clothes for yourself and how you spend? What is like a word that means you so don't care about it that you don't even notice it? I mean, for I can't tell you the last time I bought clothes for myself, like went to a store. Usually it's either I get clothes as a gift. Someone is giving clothes away and says, hey, do you want to you know, rifle through this before I give it away. Um, or usually my wife might say you're due for this or that and she'll pick something up. But I, I bet it's been 10 years since I've gone into a store and picked out clothes for myself. You know, I, I did pick out a jacket on a super sale about, a, you know, eight months ago now. Um, so maybe that counts. But other than that, I can't think of a time where if clothes is your thing and you get something out of that, then then fine. But for me personally, personal 
clothing style is really not on my radar. So uh, it's like someone bought me a t-shirt. I'm probably going to wear it. I it, it almost, well, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what it says. If it's vulgar or something, I, I, I probably wouldn't wear it, but, um, but probably maybe I would, I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, that's one for me that like, it, it doesn't even, it's, it's so such a low priority that it really doesn't even hit my radar. Another story from the past that I think might've set us a little bit on that path is there was a goodwill very close to where we went to high school. And I vividly remember if soccer practice was late for that day, or we're waiting to go to a game, there would definitely be a handful of people that would just go to the goodwill and rifle through those shirts. I think they were like two bucks a piece. And um, so that's where I got a lot of my wardrobe through high school. I even eventually uh, ramped it up to buying some of the pants there because it was there was this really small window of time where corduroys were popular, and right after that period of time, they all ended up at Goodwill. So I just bought every color I could possibly find, and that was basically my college wardrobe. For me, I kind of have gone back and forth. I've definitely had periods where I was spending more money than I should on clothes, and I think where I've found the middle ground is, hey, buy what you need, try to look relatively presentable, but you still don't need to go to these high-end, super trendy brand names. You can probably find something at a cheap department store that's going to be similar. And there's nobody that should be your friend that's really going to care that you don't have an alligator or a little guy on a horse on your shirt (laughs) and whatever the other popular logos are. Actually, one quick anecdote for that, that I really have my philosophy of brands for football fans. If you think back in the early nineties, what was the brand that was on the jerseys? It was starter. And actually for kids growing up around that time, starter jackets were the thing. I think we all had one, but we didn't actually have Pittsburgh ones for whatever reason, probably because the other teams were cheaper at like Burlington Co Factory or wherever they were coming from. But starter was very, very popular. Well, if you would look for starter today, guess where you're going to find them? Walmart. The, the, they, I'm not sure if they're an exclusive Walmart brand. I think you can get it on Amazon as well. But point being, they are, they're a budget brand. Yeah. Yeah. Last time I, we actually just bought some for my oldest and they were cheaper than the Amazon basics brand. (laughs) So if that gives you any idea of literally, do you want to spend this extra money on the emblem that's on the bottom of the shorts? Probably not because give it a year or two and it's not going to be the in thing. So from my perspective, it's not really worth uh, pursuing either. Let's talk really quick about food because now here's another one maybe similar to travel where you probably do want to spend a little bit because not always, but in a lot of cases, the cheapest stuff is just not good for you. Uh, so <laughs> I, I talk a lot about things literally not being worth it. And that's probably one of those areas. Yeah, the cheap stuff is probably also convenient, but um, high sodium, high sugar, all these terrible things. How do you try to balance a relatively healthy diet with your overall spending habits? I really don't at all. My wife takes all the credit uh, for food. I mean, she's a very educated uh, and very health conscious person. So, I mean, I, I guess in some ways I'm involved in that, you know, she'll kind of talk me through ways of stretching the budget, but still buying some of the higher quality food. So kind of going back to the comment earlier, if the kids want something that seems out of the ordinary or more expensive than I'm expecting, they kind of have to sell it. Unfortunately, uh, my wife's kind of <laughs> kind of in the same boat. Uh, as an example of that, I know she she years ago really got interested in local farming and wanted to buy a cow, a quarter cow, and that's you know, a bit of an investment up front. So she, she didn't have to do a PowerPoint or anything like that, but she did write up, you know, kind of here's, here's the cuts of meat you're getting. Here's what those cuts of meat would be comparable at like a, a Whole Foods or, you know, a, a Trader Joe's or something like that. So she kind of sold the budget piece of it on why that made sense. And and we've been doing that now for, for several years. So I enjoy learning some of the things that she tells me about, and I've watched some of the documentaries and things that, that have informed her on what she wants, but I'm, I'm really just kind of riding her coattails. 
maybe another silver lining in the food area is like with the purchasing the cow or I know something else you guys used to do. I don't know if you still do, but like the co-ops with local farms, you're supporting the local economy, which obviously with what's going on right now is more important than it maybe ever has been, at least in our lifetime. So you are at least also getting that benefit. It's just nice to be able to talk to the person that's actually producing the food. There's all different kinds of thought on what's okay to eat and what's necessary. And But when you're talking to the people producing it, you can kind of tailor what it is you're looking for to what they're offering. And, and to your point, that's almost always local. And usually it's going to be whatever your particular preference is. It, it's still probably going to be better than other options out there. How about entertainment, uh, music, streaming platforms? How do you get your movies? And then also we've touched a little bit on technology, but I'd also like to hit how you go about deciding what you need from a phone, from a computer and so on. So let's start with that first entertainment part, music, Netflix, movies. How do you go about getting those? How do you decide which ones you want to pay for and which aren't really worth it? The only streaming I have is Netflix. And there's just, (laughs) I look at my queue sometimes and I think I'm not going to watch this much stuff in a lifetime. Like I just, for me, there's so much on there that if I can't find something on Netflix at any one time that I want to watch, well, then I've got too many damn options because there's, there's definitely something on there worth watching, but not everything. And the library is a great filler for something that that's not there. And now is, you know, kind of, streaming services branch out you're you're getting you know more and more segmented lists of things and i am just not like a need to see it now type of person for the most part so if i need to see it now using that term loosely you can get almost anything from the library within let's say a month month and a half of it being released and now with a lot of these free services coming out that that do older movies older shows Yes, you have ads involved, but that expands the library quite a bit. I mean, music, there's there's just so many things free now that I really, you know, I'll, I'll listen to YouTube. I'll just put up a playlist on YouTube or something. So for entertainment, it's rare that I'm really, other than Netflix, that I'm really buying anything. And if I am buying it, it's almost always like a used DVD or something like that, which have gotten ridiculously cheap. And I want to say I might have been the one leading the way with the library resource. I mentioned the bikes and that was me taking your lead, but I know I was pretty early to adopt the library for right music and for DVDs if you don't happen to have the streaming item out there. I'm the exact same, just Disney Plus instead of Netflix. That's the only one I have. And with all of these different streaming services coming out, we're going right back to where we were with cable. The argument was I'm paying for all this stuff and I don't watch any of it. Well, if I pick up three, four of these different services, I'm pretty much back to the same cable bill that was the argument for cord cutters in the first place that that was getting so high and I'm barely using any of this. So I wonder how that's going to go. And also I think it'll be even more to people like yours and my benefit that there won't be that one single show that everybody says you have to watch. And if there's not that one single show that everybody says you have to watch, then yeah, find whatever that you find somewhat entertaining. And then it just doesn't become a water cooler topic, I guess. (laughs) Everybody's just into their own thing. You know, even the the streaming services are releasing on DVD after X amount of time. Um, And and you're right. I I know you had mentioned the library to me years and years ago, and I was thinking, oh, and, and I had a friend that, after that said, well, yeah, the library, but yeah, they've got music and they've got movies and they've got, but, but he really he was like, you know, they've got video games and they've got, now the libraries are getting into streaming and, and downloadable versions of things. So, uh, you know, I guess if you are the type of person that you want to be watching it right then when, when other people are watching it, well, that's probably not the right fit. But otherwise, that, that's kind of anytime someone says, well, is such and such streaming on us? Well, I don't know, but the library has it. <laughs> you know? I'm sure the library has yeah. it. And one other plug for 
my library, and I assume that means most out there, they've really upped their game in the world of audiobooks. So, for example, I know Audible is a pretty good option and is pretty cheap, but you can't get any cheaper than free. And I've got like 20 books queued up <laughs> that I listen to when I'm running or working or doing whatever that are all very, very current, at least in the last two years, if not even more current than that. One example, I just finished the Michelle Obama book, and I think that was published at the end of 2018. So, you know, 18 months or so. Uh, and I don't even know how long they've had it out there. I think it's been offered for much longer than that. So if you're into audiobooks, that's somewhere else that I would encourage people to check your library and see what they have available. How about technology? So what is your consideration for new phone purchase or computers? Computers, I kind of milk. I just kind of keep milking time out of them. They're not changing as fast as they used to, or at least it doesn't seem that way from a performance perspective. Maybe it's just that my demands on a computer have gone down so much that they can kind of stick with it. But by and large, four years used to be my benchmark for computers, but I've got a computer that I'm regularly using now that's God, it's got to be almost 10 years old now. And it it's kind of, it's, it's kicking. Like, it's not like I'm sitting around waiting for it all the time. It's still kind of kicking. Or Computers, I've kind of gotten to the point where, like, I'll stick with them until they frustrate me with speed or something. Phones, uh, I guess similar. General rule of thumb, I'm usually looking to get at least three years out of a phone. I mean, I do, you know, the pay-as-you-go plans, and I'm usually uh, droid phone because I can get a droid for a third of the price as an iPhone with similar specs. That's another I will say, though, I'm guilty. I do have the iPhone. However, everything computer-wise, I've always been a Windows person, and I can never quite justify moving over to a Mac. Similarly, for the reason you mentioned, that I think my use is not nearly as data heavy as what it would be for somebody that's processing a lot of video or doing other things like that. I just don't need that much power in a computer and probably not for a phone either. That's why I always buy at least a generation, if not two generations behind the current model on phone. And it does just fine. I even will go through and kind of assign for each app. Like, is this doing something for my daily life that is valuable in some way? Or on the other end of monetizing things, am I able to have this particular app that's on my phone make me some money or save me some money in some way? And if it really doesn't hit one of those two things, I try not to clutter my phone up with too many games or or anything like that so that that way it'll continue to last as long as it possibly can. Well, before we close, I know I've shared a couple of highlight stories that I've probably been accused of being a little too cheap Do you have a particular story that comes to mind where people are maybe raising an eyebrow thinking that uh, you're taking the budgeting a little bit too far? I think the Airbnb, that was a time where maybe I was like, yikes, this is a bit off more than I could chew. I mean, this place was, it was bad. It looked like we kind of made jokes about it after the fact that it looked like we had surprised a crack addict that was vacuuming his house and he heard us coming and just ran away. I mean, this, this place was a mess. <laughs> it was it was like a mess that they tried to clean, but not really. I mean, there was something like well expired in the freezer that just smelled off. I mean, it was it was bad, and it, that one I remember thinking, "Oh, geez, this is this is not good." But we didn't get there until. I don't know, 11 at night or something. And someone made the comment about finding a hotel. And I was like, well, I admit this is bad, but I'm not going to go get a hotel because I'm just that cheap. I can lay a towel down on top of the bed and I'm only going to be here for six hours to sleep or whatever. And we'll get the heck out. I'll give one last story that sticks in mind for me was my first car out of college Uh, It had this rubber weather strip across the top of the windshield, and I was driving to a friend's actually for Thanksgiving, and it was in southern Wyoming, which can get kind of windy when you're sort of out in that very flat area. And I heard this loud, like just whack, whack, whack on the top of the roof, So enough so that I pulled over to see what it was. Sure enough, it was this rubber stripping, so... I happen to have electrical tape in the car. I have no idea why, because I wouldn't have been 
trying to like hotwire my car or anything. Uh, so I basically taped it up as best I could, went to where I was going, kind of had the same issues when I got back home, finally took it into the mechanic and he quoted me like $500 or something like that, way more than I was going to spend. I'm like, really for this piece of rubber to be shoved back into this gap here? So I just went to the store and bought some black duct tape and just duct taped to the top of the car. It passed inspection. So apparently it was <laughs> not a big deal. And I thought it blended in fine. Um, some people disagreed that it that it did, but it lasted that way, well, frankly, until the car Got in an accident, uh, but but up until that point, I was I was saving a boatload on uh, you know not doing anything else with it. So I think that was one where people sort of raised an eyebrow when I decided to fix it that way and refused to pay the mechanic for the job. Take some of these stories and either roll your eyes and say I'm not going to save my money that way, or at least maybe our conversation has got you thinking on ways that you can look at your overall budget and see where there's areas that you can save and picking one of the things, Eric, that you mentioned, put it into your IRA and pat yourself on the back that uh, you were able to find some extra money and put it into your retirement or uh, other ways to save for the future like that. I think that's a really worthy activity to be done. So Eric, I really appreciate you joining today as we got to walk through memory lane uh, on some of our budgeting slash cheapness. So again, thanks for joining the show and take care. Sure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.